0: welcome to embargoed a podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions export controls international trade and for this week at least seditious conspiracy for trade nerds and normal human beings alike i am one of your hosts Brian Fleming, and I am joined, as always, by my good friend, colleague, and co-host, Mr. Tim O'Toole. Tim, how you feeling? How you feeling on this uh, January eighth, two thousand twenty-one? Two days, uh, two days removed from uh, from the events uh, that we're going to talk about in a minute at the Capitol. Two, how you feeling? Two
1: days post riot, I'm feeling pretty good. Happy to be on a podcast and and not to be uh, walking around Capitol Hill, which was much more um eventful than it normally is it's pretty sleepy in this neighborhood usually
0: yeah tim is tim is uh tim's our man on the on the scene uh to to give us real firsthand insight into what happened uh the other day at the capitol but uh we'll, we'll get all that to all that in a minute um so welcome as always to um to all of you uh happy new year uh this is our first uh pod of 2021 um after having put up a couple last last month at the end of the year um uh, we're we're like everybody else i think in the world very happy to we're very happy to welcome 2021 and then of course promptly have been punched in the face uh here in the first week <laughs> of the new year so we're, we're gonna again we're gonna talk about all that in a moment but um thank you to everybody again for joining us um as always uh it's a pleasure to be here with you um so we're gonna we have a lot to cover today uh for our first episode so we're gonna get right to it in a moment um as always uh the normal disclaimer we're not providing anyone with legal advice we're not talking about any confidential information on the podcast the opinions that you're about to hear are entirely mine and tim's they're nobody else's um if you do enjoy the pod if you are a regular listener or first-time listener and you and you like the pod please subscribe you can find us anywhere apple spotify google stitcher overcast youtube wherever you get your content please subscribe please give us a rating hopefully a five star rating so let me run through very quickly what we're going to cover today and then uh we will jump right in because we as as a result of the events of a couple days ago i think we have a we have a an initial segment that we hadn't probably been planning to do that we're going to cover here for a few minutes before we get in so um the roadmap of the the episode generally is as follows so we're going to start with the new executive order that was just issued earlier this week targeting uh chinese apps in particular alipay wechat pay and a number of other apps um we're going to talk about that what that means whether that's uh, going to stick around in the new administration. We're going to talk about the uh, military and user list, which is not no longer a phantom list. It is a real list uh, that has now been issued since we spent a bunch of time talking about it a couple of episodes ago. Um, we're going to talk about the latest guidance on the executive order targeting publicly traded securities and Chinese military companies. Uh, there's some new guidance on that that came out in the last uh, couple weeks. So we're going to talk talk about that in advance of January 11th, which is a key date under that executive order. And then we're going to finalize, we're going to finish up with, um, the individual, uh, who, at least formally. I don't know if he still currently does work for Ethereum and had traveled to uh, North Korea and has been charged with uh, conspiring to evade sanctions in connection with some training that he did or a presentation that he gave while in North Korea. His case is moving along in SDNY. Uh, we haven't talked about it since he was shortly after he was arrested. I think there's some interesting things that have bubbled up there, so we're going to talk about that for a minute. And then the light, in the lighting round, we're going to cover two topics. We're going to talk about a preliminary injunction that was just issued in SDNY also uh, relating to the um, ICC executive order. Uh, We talked about that litigation a couple months ago, so we're going to check in there to to look at that preliminary injunction. And then we're going to talk about the newly expanded Nord Stream 2 sanctions that were just um, put into effect after the National Defense Authorization Act was finally passed a few days ago. And that'll be our episode. But before we do that, we are going to talk a bit about what happened at the Capitol uh, on Wednesday. This is We're recording this on Friday, January 8th, uh, Wednesday, January 6th, of course, I think is um, a day that I think is going to live in infamy in U.S. history uh, without much question. Um, and of course, for anybody who is not aware of this, uh, who maybe is outside the U.S., not following this, uh, although it's hard to imagine anybody is not aware of this at this point. Um, after a a rally and a speech by president Trump, where he encouraged the angry mob of his supporters to essentially storm Congress. That's exactly what happened. Uh, people have been, uh, and of course now a couple days later, five people dead as a result of that. Uh, one of the, one of the, um, mob members and then four, I believe four Capitol police and other, um, people who were just on the scene from unrelated incidents. Uh, it took hours to clear the scene. Uh, Of course, this all happened in the middle of the uh, normally very routine formal uh, acceptance of the Electoral College vote to officially certify Joe Biden as the next president of the United States to be inaugurated in two weeks. And that was sort of the inciting event for uh, the rally and the actions that took place. Um, And so, you know, I think, again, because this is a podcast that focuses on national security issues and uh, and the rule of law. we felt like we have no choice but to talk about this just like everybody in the united states i think kind of feels the same at the moment um so i'll i'll just start very briefly and then throw it to tim um i was for a number of years as many of you know a national security prosecutor at the justice department and when i joined or shortly after i joined um we all received a a little blue handbook uh that essentially contains all of the statutes and uh that we are we were tasked with enforcing and investigating uh and that covers everything from uh, the types of matters that we talk about the big section on iepa and sanctions and export controls etc terrorism related statutes all those types of things that you would expect there was also a section in the manual in the book the handbook that dealt with treason rebellion insurrection seditious conspiracy uh, these are make no mistake they're federal crimes if you're not aware of that uh, they're in the U.S code um, I think the very first time I noticed that I looked at it a bit as a curiosity the only time I can ever recall seriously com- you know looking at that portion of the handbook related to uh a former member of the U.S military who was being investigated for uh, potentially selling, selling state secrets to a foreign adversary. And there was some discussion about whether, uh, the elements of treason had been met with respect to that individual. That is the only time I ever looked at it never in my wildest dreams. Did I ever think that there would be serious discussions going on now in the public sphere and presumably within the justice department as to whether or not the United States president, the sitting us president should potentially be charged with one of those crimes um it is i think sadly not surprising that this is the way this administration is concluding but it is shocking it is personally shocking to me um and it is uh you know again we we talked about this a bit over the summer when we were talking about the protests against police brutality and racial justice and for racial justice after um the george floyd and and other events that led to that um You know so much of what we talk about and what u.s policy is premised on in the area that we focus on is rooted in things like ensuring and quite frankly penalizing others around the world for not having free and fair elections for not respecting human rights Um, these are central pillars of our foreign policy in the united states uh, and As we have asked before, I'd sort of just throw this question open to the listeners, to Tim. Um, You know, how much has that been eroded by what has happened this week and over the last four years? How much does that, frankly, compromise or jeopardize the U.S.'s ability to seriously uh, enforce these laws uh, that we talk about? Literally every day, with our amongst ourselves, with our clients who are fearful of the power and the might of the U.S. government coming after them for violating these laws, and and here we are left to watch what unfolded on Wednesday and think, how how can these things compute? How can something so antithetical, so hypocritical, um so shockingly uh, dissonant from that underlying message be, um, you know, be allowed sort of to to, to go by or to stand or how, how do you reconcile those things? And, and I don't have answers to that. I'm just, th- these are the things that I have been thinking about and that I wanted to put out there. And, and with that, I'll, I'll I'll throw it to Tim to, to add a few words there.
1: Yeah, I, I never expected to be talking about this uh, it, topic in my lifetime, certainly not in connection with uh, an attempt to storm by force the United States Capitol with the intention of preventing the execution of of a law namely the constitutional act of certifying the electoral college it just seems shocking to me and i i can't believe that that it happened you know in the united states in 2021 and and just when you thought 2020 was bad um you know you wake up in 2021 and and i think probably the most consequential event of the Trump administration, quite honestly. I, I do think as I've pondered this, there's very little from the last four years, I think, that will be remembered 100 years from now, but this will be remembered 100 years from now, I, I as long as there is a United States, uh, it will be remembered that a mob stormed the Capitol to prevent the counting of votes that was instigated by an incumbent, incumbent president. You just you can't you can't even imagine such a thing happening. And to your point, Brian, um, It really is something that from a sanction standpoint, if a government in another country did this, the US likely would and and has in the fact imposed sanctions on leaders and on groups that have done exactly this, you know, There would be
0: there would be new designations, there would be a new executive order being drafted as we speak, if this happened in certain countries in Latin America or Africa or anywhere around Asia the world I mean, yeah,
1: can you imagine if let's say the, the the a group did the same thing to the to the UK parliament we, the, that group and imagine if Boris Johnson instigated that sort of thing i mean you can to say it is almost laughable because you can't imagine it happening in a developed developed democracy and yet it happened in the the world's oldest developed democracy, what used to be considered, quote, the leader of the free world is now just a, it, it's certainly something that is is no longer, um, it's moved from the the kind of the, the, the rhetoric to reality. And, and I think that that is, it's very disappointing and, and very shocking. I mean, I do want to, you know, in terms of, in terms of what this means, you know, for, for, national security for sanctions, I I, I will say that I, I was, although the the whole sequence of events was disappointing, the way that our country has responded to it so far has ma- ma- given me some optimism. Um, it, we did get to the brink, and I, I can't believe we got to this point, but it does seem like some of our institutions, many of our institutions held and seem to have prevented in, in what you know I, I think was inappropriate but but certainly not necessarily um consistent with the chain of command type way ha- having intervened and and really brought this crisis hopefully to a close um the those the, the reason i say that is at least if you know the reports are that this was ended because in the, the Secretary of Defense in consultation with Vice President Pence and the leaders of Congress on both sides of the aisle determined that the National Guard should be sent in, at least according to the reports I've read, after the President refused to do that and actually blocked it. And, and in our chain of command, um, once the President says that, you don't normally then go down the ladder to somebody else who will actually do the right thing. That did happen. And I think it's appropriate because I do think that... To the extent that the president refused to intervene in this if that's true that that was an illegal order it was an unconstitutional act in and of itself and so you can make the case that that the the, the resulting order was was legal and that our institutions stepped in to pr- protect it but the fact that we had to get there and the fact that you would be having an argument about whether it was legal for the vice president to count countermand an unlawful order of the president that had been preceded by what you know many are calling incitement of of a of an attempt to overthrow um a lawful process in the united states congress by the sitting president i mean it's just it's it's really we've we've called these interesting times we're in month nine or ten of a global pandemic we uh you know had the, the president was impeached almost exactly a year ago for things that you know were were also troubling but not uh anything approaching this nature of troubling and it's just hard to believe we're here and and i hope we get out of it and we get out of it quickly but i think people will be talking about this 100 years from now and maybe 500 years from now
0: yeah uh agreed so i think that's all we we really wanted to we we felt like we had to start there uh because it's just something that can't be ignored so um those are i agree with with everything tim said as well and and um, you know, while I think he's right that our institutions perhaps have prevented a far worse outcome here and, and there might be some reason for some optimism, there's also a lot of reason to continue to be concerned even after uh, Inauguration Day. So I don't yeah. think anybody should be under any illusions that this is uh, something that just goes away magically once uh, once there's a new administration. So. I- in, I, any, also, any I also in
1: I also did want to say, I, I mean, I got a lot a lot of people know that I live very close to the capitol um on capitol hill. and and I got a lot of you know calls and and emails and texts from people, both you know, in this country and around the world um and i i want to say i really appreciate that and it was a surreal experience to be only you know a few blocks away from what was going on and in some some ways you know a little made it a little bit scarier because you know there definitely were people who were part of this that were you know basically walking by my house on the way to and from it so so it was both a personally weird experience but also just from a just from a you know an american just a An experience that nobody ever thought they would see.
0: Agreed there. Uh, So with that, our somber opening to 2021 as we uh, the the title of this episode, by the way, which you will all be seeing at this point is Trump's parting shots at democracy and China. Uh, two, I think of his, uh, if there are lasting legacies, I think that's what, that's what they will both be. And so let's pivot now to China, which is obviously the thing that we spend the majority of our time talking about on this podcast over the, over the last year. Uh, so, so let's, uh, let's just go right into item number one, which is, uh, as I, as I said earlier, a new executive order that was just issued, uh, early this week. Uh, it is in form, uh, quite similar to what we saw issued in August with respect to WeChat and TikTok. Uh, it is it is titled an executive order addressing the threat posed by applications and other software developed or controlled by Chinese companies. Uh, again, this is the, the sort of the preamble here and the justification for this is again, US data security uh, and data privacy considerations. Uh, again, very similar to TikTok and WeChat. And the again, the, the sort of uh, mechanisms that this will be by which this will be implemented, at least on the face of the e- executive order, are largely the same. Um, the prohibitions don't go into effect uh, until 45 days after issuance of the order, which is February 19th. Uh, and the secretary of commerce is, again, charged with defining and identifying what those what the specific prohibited transactions are going to be pursuant to the order um i will just i will read sort of one snippet here and then make a couple comments and i'll throw it to tim so again this is this is targeting uh us persons persons uh, subject to the jurisdiction of the us and the prohibitions will extend to uh any transaction with persons that develop or control the following chinese connected software applications or with their subsidiaries as those transactions and persons are identified by, by the secretary of commerce and they are Alipay, CamScanner, QQ Wallet, Shareit, Tencent QQ, Vmate, WeChat Pay and WPS Office. So that's a a pretty wide array, including some very big players there. Obviously, Alipay and Ant, WeChat Pay. We've talked about Tencent, Um, some very major companies that are implemented implicated there and some applications that are very widely used um certainly in china but also in the us and around the world um so I, I think here here's kind of the the couple of um just quick thoughts on this that to throw over to you to respond to and to consider so number one we know obviously given the track record of the wechat and tic eos both of which are not in effect at the moment due to multiple preliminary injunctions uh that were based on a variety of uh, IEPA-related um, uh, grounds in terms of the uh, information materials, personal communications, carve-outs, the Berman amendments, and First Amendment grounds. Um, and primarily those are sort of the two bases. So um, clearly I think if these if these prohibitions are gonna move forward, there's, we're gonna see more court challenges. We're gonna see things that are gonna mirror and mimic what we've already seen be successful in these prior challenges. Now, I think the the one question here is that the nature of the apps and the software that's in play here, not exactly as squarely within kind of the traditional communications, first amendment kind of bucket. Some Some of them are to some degree, but some of them, you know, like the payments apps, Right. are arguably just commercial, right? Just for commercial purposes, there's no speech, there's no, you know, so, you know, I think that puts these in, and again, there's a, the, among the apps that I read and that I read off that are part of the order, it, it, it varies. So it could depend on who would bring a challenge and it it may not be possible to sort of perhaps block the entire uh, suite of these from going into effect, but it, at least some of them I think would be susceptible to similar challenges. So that'll be interesting to see how that may play out. The other big question and, and thing to bear in mind is, this is coming barely two weeks before the end of the administration. Um, it doesn't go into effect for 45 days. So so the Biden administration and his incoming Secretary of Commerce or the or, or actually the acting Secretary of Commerce after he takes over, and that team are going to inherit this. I have a very hard time believing that this is one that they're going to let just sort of play out. I I think there's a very high likelihood this gets rescinded or modified substantially or at least shelved for some indefinite period of time while they consider how they might want to deal with these issues. Again, the underlying issues are well understood and well, uh, I think, widely agreed to be problems uh national security problems not controversial at all but the means and the mechanism of achieving that um i think is somewhat controversial and is in dispute and as as evidenced by the way that the wechat and TikTok orders were imp- or attempted to be implemented which is to say that they were not allowed to be given the the way they were um those were handled and the way they were drafted and the way the prohibitions were put together. Uh, I think there's a very good chance that these things are gonna get kind of put on ice once the new administration takes over. So so just on, on that front, I guess, what are your kind of initial reactions? Cause...
1: So so I, you know, I'm gonna harken back to what we talked about at the beginning of the program in a second, but I, I think that it really is important to understand that these things are, are not be viewed in a vacuum that you can't look at them in a vacuum. This is another act by the trump administration as it widens down and this is not unusual to any administration that is leaving office you try to lock in some of your policies and make them hard for your successor to undo particularly if your successor is from a different political party and and so you know this is of a piece with a lot of actions that we'll talk about today and that we talked about at the end of last year where the trump administration is trying to lock in some of its policies with respect to china and i and i do think that um you know when you read that executive order there's many things in it that the biden administration i think the national security people there would agree with that that this the threat from the chinese government collection of data on u.s citizens is not a partisan issue and i think there's concern on both sides of the aisle about it and i think that was what this order was nominally designed to address but i do think that it was that the timing of it and kind of the the un the weird nature i, I was going to say unprecedented but that's too legal a word it's just weird that they're doing this to certain apps that they've identified right at the end of the administration but i but i think it's one of those things that it, it, in an in a vacuum would be hard for a predecessor coming into office to undo without some political fallout i think that the events of this week have actually made it much easier for a president biden to undo almost anything president trump did in the last few weeks i mean i think everything that he touches right now is going to be viewed as suspect and make it easier to undo and that the politics of undoing it will be a lot easier i mean i'm not a political theorist or a political expert but i i do think from just a political standpoint um it might have been hard if this was just viewed as a policy issue for Uh, president biden to come in and say no we're undoing this because we're not concerned about chinese collection of u.s persons you know confidential private data but it will be a lot easier now to say hey this was two days after there was this riot at the capitol that was by all reports instigated by president trump we're we're undoing anything we feel like undoing with respect to that because it's all viewed as suspect so i agree with you ultimately this is likely not to take effect in the form that is in this executive order and may nothing might like it like it may ever take effect at all although i i i do think that this executive order did a much better job than the the wechat order or the TikTok orders of actually trying to come up with a justification that that might pass the laugh test because it's not really regulating speech in the way that those orders were doing and it is seems to be tied to a you know legitimate problem now whether or not there's any evidence that these apps in particular were the source of that problem i i don't know but it seems like a, a much it, the legal case against these these uh restrictions I think would be more difficult than the ones in TikTok and WeChat. And so if this were to go to litigation, I'm not sure that you'd see the same sort of result, but I think this may never get to litigation because politically it will be much easier for the Biden administration to undo than it would have been if you had a President Trump who was spending his last two months in office really focusing on his policy agenda and everyone was convinced that this was a real policy um, choice, which it may well have been. President Trump may have had nothing to do with this, but I do think that things Happen in in this period of time are going to be very suspect if they're coming from the Trump administration right now.
0: Yeah, I agree with all that, and I, I would just say a couple of final thoughts, which is uh, it, this this issue in particular, even before the events of this week, is so I think closely tied to President Trump himself, the rhetoric that he's used targeting China, the actions, some you know again the this sort of un, at least unorthodox actions that have been taken with respect to China and targeting specific companies and doing all kinds of things uh, that have have really never been done before that it is easier to kind of uh, perhaps a- again, rescind this or or to modify it substantially and and claim, look, we we agree with the underlying concern, but we're going to do this differently because we just don't agree with the the way the way it's it's been uh, you know, uh, conceived. And I think that, and to your point also, I would expect that and we we heard rumors of various things kind of on this front we had heard about something targeting Ant Financial and, and and Alipay in the past so so there was this is not like completely out of the blue but this and the same time you you would think that with the lessons that have been learned from WeChat and TikTok executive orders and the litigation there The, you know, the ideas of, you know, have reasonable alternatives been considered and has this been appropriately narrowly tailored and have, you know, what is our response when they accuse us of, uh, you know, inappropriately encroaching into the the Berman amendments territory and informational materials and how is this actually regulating speech and all the other things like that. I would think those things have been thought through perhaps not because I wouldn't bet a nickel. Obviously this is a, this is a, this is a shoot first, ask questions later kind of approach that this administration has taken on, on these, on some of these issues. So maybe not, but, but, but perhaps, I don't know. So, but I agree with you that I think there's a very good chance that we're never going to, you know, it's not going to get to that point and we're going to know it more in any event in about, you know, three weeks three or four weeks i would think by the time we get to day 30 or so i think there will be sufficient pressure to have some kind of clarity as to what's going to happen here are we actually getting prohibitions or is this going to go away or is you know what's the case so there's enough companies that have a skin in this that are that i think that will happen much like what happened um even with wechat and TikTok, where there was some signaling that it was going to be kind of relatively narrowly tailored and and even there it, it it was in some respects but not enough obviously to to hold up so so in any event i think we'll know a lot more in in about a month or so i'm certain we're going to be coming back to this issue but for now we just kind of wanted to tee that up and give some initial thoughts and with that um let's flip over to another one of the on the way out the door parting shots at china um which we again started teasing the last time when it was still not certain this was coming but the the military and user list so i'll throw that to tim
1: sure and and we talked about this before as the phantom military end user list because at the time um you know there there, it had been leaked or some version of it had been leaked um but there was some question about whether the final version was ever going to be issued and turns out that it was um and now there is a list of military end users and it's a list that is akin to uh the the entity list so essentially now there is a And I guess we should back up just to review very quickly for those people who have not been following the discussion. Back last summer, uh, the Commerce Department amended a regulation that restricts sales of certain U.S. origin goods to military end users, mostly in China, but also in Russia and Venezuela. And the definition of military end users is in part very straightforward because you know when you think of a military end user you think of the army navy air force marines and those are included within the definition but there is a essentially a catch-all provision that was much broader and much more difficult to apply with respect to china especially given what the u.s views as the the chinese um civilian military integration so sometimes it's hard to tell whether a civilian facing uh, organization has the uh exercises the functions and and of a of a, at least some military functions and if it does whether it would fall within that definition and so since the the change to the regulation there has been a lot of com- confusion among u.s businesses in determining what is a chinese military end user and a lot of calls for more guidance on this and so from one standpoint the military end-user list is designed to provide that sort of guidance, and so it essentially says, you know, these entities are military end-users, even though they're not within the traditional definition of a military, uh, of a military, you know, body. They don't look like the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, but we're telling you as the Commerce Department that they are on this list. So so to the extent that it provides that sort of guidance, so much the better, but the problem is it's several fold. One is that goes further than that. It puts them on a list that they, they are now automatically considered to be military end users for all purposes, uh, meaning that they, you know, sending goods to these companies requires a license. But one question is, okay, well, the, the the licensing policy is a presumption of denial, but some of the guidance indicates that's not really the licensing policy, that it's essentially the license requirement is designed to check who's getting what and in, in certain instances, it, there, there will be licenses granted. So you know, now that you you have a customer on this list, should you seek a license? Is it a big waste of everybody's time? We don't really know. I mean, the the words say, yes, it is a waste of time, but some of the guidance suggests that it's not. And so there's more confusion, the, the list creates some confusion. It is a, a huge step in the sense that you now have to petition to get off the list. So not only are you, uh, if you're a a Chinese company on this list, you're on this list and you're on this list forever until you can get yourself removed by the end user review committee, which is a pretty arduous process, as as you and I both know. So so it's it's a big step. It's kind of an unprecedented step. It's not, you know, normally you would have thought that they would have provided this in the form of guidance, but instead they provided it in the form of a of an actual list that you need to be taken on and put put off of, um, which is problematic in its own right. But then even in in the form of guidance, they essentially say, just because you're not on this list doesn't mean you're not a military end user. And they're very clear about that, which means that, I mean, one of the things that I was hoping if this list ever came out was that you essentially as a US business could could engage in a presumption that the the government didn't think that companies that weren't on this list were military end users. Now, if you have some special red flag reason to believe that your customer is a military end user, even though they're not on the list, then obviously they could fall within that catch-all definition, but you'd be pretty safe in presuming that if they're not on the list, they're not a military end user, unless you have evidence to the contrary. But this, the the discussion in connection with the, the military end user list says exactly the opposite. This doesn't tell you anything about companies that aren't on the list, so it really doesn't provide much guidance at all with respect to those companies, and then with respect to the companies that are on the list, it's actually much worse than guidance. It, it Creates extra impediments to doing business with those companies, and so it really is—it's it, almost guidance and a new rule, rule, but in the form of a, of a sanction and, and very little guidance at all.
0: Yeah, I, just a, a couple of quick thoughts. I think to me that is the big point—that this is a non-exhaustive list, yeah. and even though uh, creating a list like this is has been done, apparent, you know, and as is being styled as a uh you know a a good thing for the sake of clarity and for helping to uh help help companies sort out who is and is not kind of on the naughty and the nice list here um to tim's point they are very it is very clear if you're if your customer or whomever you are exporting re-exporting to is not on the list you are still responsible for for doing your own due diligence to determine yourself whether or not they may or may not be a military end user so in terms of the burden that that places on uh exporters and others that are part of various supply chain uh supply chains that sort of feed into in particular china but also russia uh, that's a that's a heavy burden and that's a lot of risk and i think until until there's some time passes and perhaps there's maybe a course of you know sort of a course of dealing and people get more comfortable perhaps in where they're how much due diligence is enough where do you draw these where do you draw the lines because as we've talked about before the faqs and other guidance on what is and is not part of that catch-all category is still pretty murky uh you you know i think it's just going to be a lot of a lot of line drawing exercises and a lot of internal memos trying to help justify kind of decision making and things like that that you know we're obviously part of that process with a number of our clients and and i think that that's that's how people are going to have to proceed for the time being which is not a great you know not the, not a great place to be on the other hand when the u.s government is essentially taking the position that just about any company in china can be seen as being part of the civil military integration plan of the chinese government it's hard not to it's hard not to be uh, to to exercise some caution and to be worried, right? So that's that's kind of where we where we we find things, and uh, that's that's kind of my big takeaway. I would also right. just say, you know, there from the the sort of the leaked list that we had seen previously, this was that list was called pretty significantly. I think there were there were well over a hundred entities on that list. I think this is just over a hundred. It's about half. It's about fifty fifty China and Russia with a little more skewing toward china um and so but but again to tim's point just like the entity list i think we're going to be seeing on a regular basis we'll be seeing new additions to this list uh over time and so it'll be something that for screening purposes and other otherwise companies are now going to have to build in um and you know we'll, we'll we'll just have to have to see sort of how active this list is also under the new administration because this is obviously a uh something that was cooked up under uh the trump administration and under under his commerce department so we'll see how active it is i would suspect that again th- these are not the sort of civil mil- military integration issue in china concerns about sort of theft or diversion uh or misappropriation of of u.s technology and and uh items subject to you know u.s export controls for the chinese military is not a new concern that has been around for many 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 years uh again it's sort of the execution how do you get there how do we how do we actually achieve that i think that is the that is uh, the the big question and so you know we'll see time will tell sort of what the new the new team does and how and whether this is a very active or becomes as active as the entity list has been the last couple of years you know we'll see
1: yeah i I will say this I, i think that you know to me, the the, the underlying message you know, after this change and all the changes from last summer is that the military end user rule is still a mess. It is a complete mess. It's impossible to deal with from a U.S. Um, company exporter perspective. And I don't think this is going to be the last word on it. I, I'm not sure that we'll see the sort of repeal that we're talking about in connection with the the executive order from the first segment. But I do think that, you know, if it were up to me, if I were, if I were um, head of commerce for a day, which <laughs> would be a disaster in so many other ways, but, but I, but one, what I would do is I would, well, I, I would direct that this uh, catch all provision be rewritten to be more concrete so that people could understand. What it means and could comply, it could 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 comply with it in a way that is both kind of predictable, but also makes sense from a national security perspective. Because right now, to me, that's the big problem is that it's a catch-all, so that anything could fit in it. And because anything could fit in it, you know, from a compliance perspective, it just creates risk if you're selling to China.
0: Yeah. No. Uh, Well said. So while we all ponder what um, the Commerce Department would look like with Tim in charge, let's move on to. Please do not. Let's let's move on to a topic number three, which is, uh, as we talked about on one of our last episodes of 2020, there's the new executive order that came out targeting communist Chinese military companies and, and in particular, publicly traded securities in those companies. uh, As we touched upon when we first discussed this I think there were a lot more questions that were raised by the executive order when it um when it was first released and uh there were many who were kind of clamoring for uh additional guidance in particular uh w- because January 11th which by the time this pod goes up which will probably be on the 12th uh of January January 11th is a is a key date there by which um certain prohibitions go into effect um the wind down provisions for divestitures extend basically for the rest of this year into november uh so i think that'll that'll we're going to see a lot play out over the course of the next 10 11 months during that time period but there was certainly a lot of um i think a widespread agreement in the trade nerd community certainly that there were a lot of questions uh that needed some answers and so ofac has tried to do that they've issued now i think it's eight or nine new faqs just in the past couple of weeks it's for anybody who hasn't seen these it's faqs 857 through 865. i'm not we're not going to go through in in in, uh, gruesome detail every one of these but at at a high level they have covered the sort of some of the i'll just kind of rattle through a couple of these topics quickly so um there was a question about subsidiaries of listed entities um and by the way there is now a new list that you can find on the ofac website which is the nsccmc list the non-sdn communist chinese military company list so thank thankful for that that we have yet another list to add to our um, endless string list of lists um, and uh, there was some questions about subsidiaries w- would the 50 percent rule apply and essentially what the guidance says is that we are going to apply the principles of the 50 percent rule we're also going to look at companies that are controlled by those that are listed, but the prohibitions do not go into effect until such com- such companies are specifically listed, are publicly listed on this list. So those subsidiary considerations, they they're sort of adhering to the 50% rule, but unlike with block parties with the SDN list, it doesn't automatically apply it, they will have to be listed that is the, that's the guidance there there was also some questions about exact matches or close matches uh, they OFAC very helpfully said well it's, if it's an exact match or a close match then it applies to that entity so so thank you for that <laughs> what is a close match exactly <laughs> I, don't, I don't know i'm sure there will be some i'm Smart sure guidance. there's going to be a lot of debating and and hand-wringing over that um, there was some clarity on what is a publicly traded security what's a financial instrument that's going to be covered there were questions about um applicability to exchange traded funds and mutual funds uh and they and ofac has now confirmed that uh etfs and mutual funds that hold these uh publicly traded securities of these companies these listed companies are subject to these prohibitions for us persons so that's um an important clarification and then there was also some uh, FAQs that dealt with um, facilitating divestiture of uh, investments in these securities and um, support services that are permitted. And and I think in some, without sort of getting into too much details there, there, there is quite a bit that US persons can do in terms of facil- facilitating divestitures and uh, providing support services relating to um, trading or sales uh, or, or purchases of these publicly traded securities. Um, and again, the the wine net, the sort of the divestment period uh, that was laid out in the executive order goes through november of 2021 so so there's going to be a lot more that plays out over the course of the next 10 11 months here as as many entities are trying to sort this out um i I would also say there was some interest there's also an interesting sort of related issue which is the new york stock Stock exchange has announced they first announced they would be delisting three of these entities china mobile china telecom and china unicom three of the largest chinese telecom providers Uh, then they backtracked on that and said no we're not going to delist them and then they flip-flopped and they said, no, we are going to delist them. <laughs> and they're, and it's very clear they were conferring with OFAC about this uh, the entire time. And maybe it looked maybe for a while, like perhaps they weren't going to delist. They were going to, there was going to be some specific guidance on that, or they were going to get a license for that. But but just a day or two ago now, they have gone back and said, no, as of January 11th, we're delisting them, those three entities. Um, so that's all the, the question I want, or the hot take that I have on this Brace yourself on this t- for this, Tim, I'm before waiting. I throw it to you.
1: I'm a baited breath.
0: I actually think that the FAQs that have been rolled out here are pretty good. They cover a lot of ground. They, I... they actually clarify a lot. <laughs> so uh, kudos to OFAC. We don't, we don't, you know, in fairness to our friends at OFAC and BIS and other places, again, we say it all the time, they're good, smart, hardworking people. We know they are doing their jobs as best they can in these trying, interesting times. I think here they actually did a pretty good job. Now, I'm not saying that every scenario has been covered, every question, every ambiguity by any stretch. I, I, I don't, if for purposes of if we end up in front of uh, a court litigating about fair notice, I am not conceding that we have fair notice of all uh, <laughs> elements of the, um, of this executive order. But uh, I do think this is a good start at least. Uh, and and so that's, that's, that's what I'll <laughs> that's where I'll end my thoughts on that and I'll kick it over to you.
1: So I, I will distinguish between the, executive order itself, which is yet another attempt post-election to uh, throw another complicated uh, issue in terms of trade with China into the mix that has left a lot of people scratching their head. And the guidance, which I agree with you, Brian, is you know a lot of the questions, or at least many of the questions that we had when this order came out have been um, answered in a way that uh, you know seems to make sense you know given what the executive order was designed to do seems to make sense uh, the only the only other thing that i will say is uh, you know the zig and then zag of the new york stock exchange was really quite astounding to me because i i did puzzle over how it was that they thought that they could um list a company in which us persons could not uh invest now i'm not sure why you know the 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 efficacy of such an order is is in dispute to me because um, it's really hard to say that the that these companies are going to be punished because uh, you can't invest in their stock when they don't get a penny from any of these investments in their stock. I mean, they've already issued it; it's for sale on the public markets. But uh, if in the long run, if it drives the price of their shares down, I guess it does punish them, although it doesn't punish them directly. But but if if the New York Stock Exchange was going to leave these companies on the list. Uh, from a compliance perspective it just seemed like an utter nightmare to try and actually um have a system where u.s persons couldn't you couldn't sell to u.s persons and you would likely be facilitating um, transactions that violate the order. If you sold to non-U.S. persons, because the New York Stock Exchange is a U.S. person, if it's if it engaged in transactions with non-U.S. persons involving the the sales of these stock, they they would seem to be doing something that a U.S. person themselves couldn't do, and so or facil- facilitating a transaction that a U.S. person couldn't themselves do. And so, I, I just was astounded as to how they were going to continue to list these companies when U.S. persons couldn't invest in the stock and what how they. They would figure out who the buyer was when generally that's not what a stock exchange would do. And that would leave it to the dealer brokers who themselves don't have a lot of mechanisms for determining who whether a US person is involved in the purchase or sale of these securities. So I, I'm not surprised that ultimately they settled on the idea that they're going to have to delist these companies. But I, I still would love to know what made them think that they could keep these companies listed um, despite their presence on the... On the 13959 uh you know list
0: yeah i mean my speculation is that at least they had they they must have gotten some indication from ofac that perhaps it would have it would not have been strictly required for them to do it but i agree right. with you there are so many just sitting and spinning out the compliance nightmares that could come along with keeping those publicly listed in on on the NYSE is it's it makes my head hurt right. just like, thinking right. And there's about it no like right there's no uh, requirement
1: right there's maybe they got that answer that you're not yeah. required to delist it's not it's not in the order they can leave right. them on there but they Correct. but they can't facilitate transactions in which U.S. persons purchase these investments
0: right so that yeah so I, I yeah so i don't know i agree i would love to have been a fly on the wall on those com conver- in those conversations and maybe more will come out as to what drove the decision but in any event as of next monday as of monday as of which will now be uh, for anybody listening on the day we put this up will be yesterday uh those three uh giant chinese telecoms will no longer be listed on the NYSE. uh so yeah, I agree with you. I guess this is my one last thought before we move on to uh, a non-China topic to North Korea um, is, you know, obviously there's been a lot of grumbling from China, <laughs> very unhappy about this, not surprisingly. Uh, and to your point, it's another kind of post election shot across the bow, you know, poking the eye to China from this administration, on the way out the door. And, you know, I wonder, I agree with you that I don't, I don't think just like the MEU list, I don't think this is going away uh, on, you know, come February or March or after the new administration takes over. But, but I do wonder, again, whether there may be some modifications, there may be uh, some uh, perhaps openness to uh, perhaps, again, executing this in a slightly different manner than what we're what we've seen here what we've seen to date so so again i think that i think with everything that has happened certainly in the past year but even in the especially in the past couple months and especially relating to china i think that those are that's a question that everybody should be asking themselves as well What do we expect, how do we expect this to be different, if at all, I think there's a good chance in many cases it will be done differently, even if, even if the underlying authorities don't go away, even if the EO doesn't go away completely, I I think there's a good chance we could see a bit of a changing, change in tactics.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, look, there's a lot of things that have been put on the table in the last few months with respect to china and they certainly i don't think that the the incoming biden administration is necessarily invested in in any of them and though though i think it probably agrees with some of the reasons that at least the stated reasons that these were put into place and so some of them will stay some of them will go most likely if there aren't other intervening events but you could see these as potential bargaining chips in a negotiation with china and and certainly bargaining chips that could be substantially modified as part of a negotiated resolution of a lot of the outstanding issues between the two countries.
0: Yeah, no, I agree with that. Okay, so with that, let's go to our final topic, our our only non-China topic, uh, our only non-China, non-sedition topic of the day, which is North Korea. And for that, I'm gonna turn to Tim to talk about a very interesting case in SDNY that had some activity in December that we wanted to touch upon.
1: Yeah, so we talked about this in one of the earlier episodes. Um, Ethereum developer Virgil Griffith uh, and his travels to North Korea, and apparently, I, and and I, I'm I'm working from memory on this, because I haven't gone back and, and reviewed the reports from the time, but my understanding was that uh, Mr. Griffith was intending to travel to North Korea to speak at a conference on cryptocurrency, that he is an expert in cryptocurrency, and that he asked OFAC for permission and was told that he he was not going to get to per- permission and that he went anyway. And I think- I think, talked- he,
0: I think he asked the State Department for a visa and he didn't a get a de- visa right, from the State right, Department. Right,
1: because yeah. right now the, the, there's, there's no travel to North Korea because Correct. of the visa provisions. So he's told no. Although uh, the reason that I was thinking OFAC is that OFAC, OFAC conversations have now come up in the case, um, yeah. in in the case involving uh, Mr. Griffith in, in the SDNY. And so, so he was he went to North Korea anyway. Spoke at the conference uh and talked about cryptocurrency and when he came back to the united states he was arrested for traveling to, to north korea and is now charged with violating uh the north korea sanctions and one of the charges is based on the idea that his his speaking at the conference essentially provided a service to north korea um the the he's moved to dismiss and the motion to dismiss, I, I have to say, I, I found it much more compelling than I expected to. Um and and the the gist of the motion to dismiss appears to be that he, he provided no benefit to North Korea through his speech because it was basically a crypto 101 it was information that was already in North Korea, so he wasn't providing anything new, and so therefore not providing a service. But also that you know, all, there there is the Burman Amendment that we've talked about in connection with a lot of the um, the restrictions on both TikTok and WeChat WeChat, we, under which um, the president doesn't have the power under IEPA to regulate the free flow of of information uh, under the guise of sanctions, and. The argument of Mr. Griffith, again, that I thought was was relatively compelling, assuming that these are the facts, is that you, going to a conference in a country and speaking about things that are already really a matter of public public record in that country itself um, does not seem to be a, a providing a service to that country, nor does it seem to be something that would be within the scope of, of things that are allowed to be regulated under IEPA as a, as a sanction. And so therefore, you know, he didn't do anything wrong other than potentially violate the the visa provisions, um, but but certainly not the sanctions provisions related to North Korea.
0: Yeah, and the only thing he's charged with, he is charged in a one count indictment with conspiracy to violate IEPA right, by by virtue of providing these prohibited services to North Korea. And and I think exactly what you're hitting on is as reported. And we I haven't read the transcript of the hearing, but there was a hearing held by the by the judge in the matter in december and it seems that the judge is also skeptical of whether or not this constitutes a service what he did and that to me those are the two the two most interesting aspects of the motion to dismiss and i agree i think it's quite compelling and it'll be very interesting to see how this plays out uh are you know he basically says look i didn't provide a service at all what i did was not a crime period and there's a number of reasons kind of cited for that tim has alluded to a number of them there's there's some discussion in there about that it's not defined under the regs the government counters by citing to the Iran regs and to Iran cases. And so we have kind of, an we have Exxon potentially issue. the, we have sort of an ExxonMobil fair notice issue potentially but in a criminal, in a criminal case. So uh, with an individual, so that, that dynamic is interesting. So, so that's one aspect of it. And then the other is, again, the the Berman amendments and whether or not what he was doing or what, uh, you know, the, just by going to this conference and speaking was, um, what could be considered properly to be informational materials that, that were being conveyed, and the government, of course, takes a sep- exception with that, and how it's how that's defined, and how OFAC defines that, and so we'll see. That's going to be probably a, a ways off to before we get any kind of a, a ruling on this. Right now, I believe the trial is set for later this year. I think September was thrown around as the potential trial date. Um, the other, but I think that uh, you know, again, one count indictment uh against an individual for something that you know i think he i think he's making some very good arguments that if this is uh you're telling me this is you know willful violation of the north korea sanctions and i'm telling you that i don't even i'm telling you here that i don't even think what i did was a crime to begin with uh i think that's setting up a very interesting juxtaposition because i can't imagine this is a case that's going to i i have a hard time seeing a plea coming in this case so i think this is one that's either going to get if he somehow prevails and gets it dismissed ahead of trial that would be remarkable and and kudos to his his lawyers some of whom we know and uh and if if not then i think this is going to go to trial and we're and we're going to have another very interesting uh sort of example of how this plays out when um when the government and DOJ decide to really push the limits of of how these these statutes are interpreted and and I should add too as another background matter I noted that in the in the pending motions that were resolved or were in, before the judge in December there was a request for OFAC related discovery and that was granted and if you recall as we just discussed on the year end pod last year the Sodder case that's exactly the same problem that, right. That's what prompted all the problems there, is that there was OFAC discovery that did not get turned over, that was d- deemed to be Brady. And then the, once that thread got pulled, everything unraveled. And so here, I think because of the, the timing, it, you know it wasn't this tortured multi-year process i would i would imagine where you know prosecutors were going to ofac and lobbying for them to do something and ofac said no we're good i think this all happened a lot more quickly so the the likelihood that there's sort of deep files from ofac on how they viewed this and all the rest of it i think is probably less likely but at the same time because sure. we're in the same district and because we're dealing with sort of a, a sufficiently kind of analogous situation I'm very curious to see what comes out there, and I think um, obviously the government's going to have to tread very, very carefully in terms of its review of that, that material and, and making sure that they're not going to run into another buzz saw like they did in solder by um, potentially uh, you know, not fulfilling their their discovery obligations.
1: Well, that is what I was alluding to when I mentioned that OFAC is is wrapped up in this. Is that there is this discovery request that's been granted with respect to OFAC, which is yep. exactly the solder scenario. And I suspect that the briefing. I haven't gone back and read it, but I suspect that the briefing focused heavily on what happened in the solder case as a ground for getting discovery on this issue. I think that there might be some stuff there, and I'll tell you what I think that that it might be. The Berman Amendment doesn't just restrict or doesn't just you know wall off from from the sanctions programs uh, informational materials. It also deals with travel, and so I suspect that the reason that the visa issue came out the way that it did is because, you know, while the the Secretary of State can can decide who gets a visa and whether they travel or not, but that it, that to, to do that in the context of sanctions, it's beyond the president's power. And so the, there is no restriction on travel to North Korea from a sanction standpoint. And so that's likely why there is no uh, count that relates to to the unauthorized travel to North Korea because it's not sanctionable to travel to to North Korea. And my guess is that there was some discussion about whether they could go after him for the travel, and perhaps OFAC said, "Hey, that's that's outside our authority," and so no, we can't.
0: Yeah, perhaps that would. Yeah, that's a good that's a good theory. We shall see. Uh, so anyway, we we just thought that was uh, that was an interesting. It's the case is kind of in an interesting posture and point right now, so we wanted to flag that. Uh, as there have been some news reports on that recently, and and so I'm I'm certain we will be coming back to that in in a few months whenever we get rulings on the on the motion or or the trial proceeds. So, with that, we are wrapped up for the main portion of the show, and we will now proceed to the lightning round. Uh, the lightning round, our lightning round fully supports um, democratic principles, 100 percent, just to be clear. Uh, so uh, we're not anti an anti-democratic uh, lightning round. So. Um, Number one, two issues in the lightning round. Number one is a topic. These are both topics we've hit on in the past. So some updates and quick thoughts. So number one, we talked a few months ago about um, an interesting bit of uh, litigation that was brought again in SDNY by a group um, known as the Open Society Justice Initiative and several individuals uh, relating to the International Criminal Court uh, executive order that was issued by uh, 13928 that was issued uh, last year uh relating and the two individuals in particular that were designated under that um under that eo uh and added to the sdn list uh and and i'm not going to rehash all the reasons for that i think that's we've covered that um pretty extensively uh in the past but the at the time when we saw the lawsuit i think tim and i both had some skepticism that they were going to be able to get traction uh in their efforts to potentially get a uh, preliminary injunction to, what they essentially wanted to do was to be able to continue to assist and collaborate with these individuals at the ICC, because these are lawyers and policy experts who provide advice and guidance and uh, legal briefing and, and other uh, things like that, that bear upon the business of the ICC. And so they had said at the time, and I, I haven't gone back and looked uh, fully, but I believe they had sought guidance from OFAC, they hadn't got it within you know a matter of a couple of weeks. And, and we said, well, of course, of course, they haven't gotten it within a matter of a couple of weeks. Uh, so instead they filed a lawsuit and we said, well, maybe that'll get them their guidance, but I you know prospects of success here seem low. Well, lo and behold, uh, just a couple of days ago, uh, they got a preliminary injunction that was granted. Uh, as to them, as to these individuals in this this uh, that are in this case, so it is it is narrow uh, and it is on first Amendment grounds uh, and so, a number of the other grounds that were asserted are, are some of the same ones that we've been talking about now a lot recently, which is, um, you know, Fifth Amendment, AIPa uh, exceeding the bounds of AIPa because you're verging into Berman Amendment territory, APA violations, et cetera. Most of those essentially were found to be not ripe or not. No likelihood of success on the merits. But the First Amendment claim here was um, was the grounds that the court found on. And interestingly, the court found that um, for First Amendment nerds out there that strict scrutiny needed to apply because they viewed this as a content based um, restriction on speech because speech that supported these designated individuals at the ICC was regulated, but speech that would not be supportive of them was not regulated. I'm not 100% sure that I agree with that analysis, but they, the court in any event said, well, even if we were applying uh, intermediate scrutiny we would still come out the same way essentially so they, they kind of give that the back of the hand at the end of the day but but um I this is just an, a very interesting outcome I just I don't know that we saw this one coming um again this is sort of we're stacking up now court challenges that have been successful against aipa based authorities which if you had asked me a year ago what the likelihood of success is generally when that's the case Very, very low. And maybe this is great lawyering. Maybe these are unique facts and circumstances. I think, as we've talked about a lot, some of the actions of the Trump administration are perhaps, uh, you know, playing a little fast and loose with how the authority was used. And so maybe that's part of the reason here is that we're kind of, they're getting out a bit over their skis on some of this, but, uh, I don't know what what are your what are your thoughts on the on the pi in in this icc litigation
1: so so one good thing about 2020 and and now the beginning of 2021 is we're seeing lots of fruitful litigation challenging (laughs) iepa authorities which is also unprecedented but you know you make you have unprecedented executive orders you'll have some unprecedented results in litigation is the main thing that i read out of the litigation and Good for them. I mean, I, 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 while we may have been somewhat skeptical of the chances in this particular litigation because of the way it was framed, I think we've always been very clear that this executive order is is very problematic on many levels. It certainly from a policy standpoint, even if not from a, a legal standpoint. I, I think this might be the beginning of the end for that executive order because I I suspect that a at a that the Biden administration Justice Department may not be so anxious to defend an executive order that essentially sanctions the International Criminal Court, you know, function. And and while obviously they may not uh, decide that the U.S. is going to join the International Criminal Court, I, I I don't think that they will want to have a situation that exists currently where we're, we're essentially enemies and and it is sanctionable to provide any support to the international criminal court and so so i think um one way that that could this litigation could now settle is that it could become or or become mooted is that that executive order were to go away and this gives the to the extent that there was already the will to do away with that executive order this gives them the it, this gives them a good justification we we re- withdrew it to prevent pending litigation in which we were losing
0: Yeah, my initial prediction was that this, when the order came out, was that it might go unused, essentially. I was proven wrong on that, obviously. But I think I'm right there with Tim that this might be one that is ripe for reassessment by DOJ and OFAC and and could very well go away uh, at some point in, you know, the not in the next few months. So so we'll keep We'll keep an eye on that generally and on the litigation to see if if uh, if there's any additional developments here. But um, but with that, let's wrap up that uh, initial issue and move on to lightning around topic number two, which is one of our one of our old favorites Nord Stream 2 sanctions and I'll throw that to Tim.
1: So, you know, we've told the tale of Nord Stream 2 sanctions from, you know, section 232 of C A T S A in 2017, and then we, I think we, one of the first podcasts that we did, we talked about PISA and that, and the, the, um which had some, which was, I think, adopted at the end of last year, maybe as part of the, the NDAA last year, but it was, um you know, another provision that, that uh, sanctioned Nord Stream 2 directly although it was very narrow it was really the vessels that were uh, essentially laying the laying the pipes for Nord Stream 2 uh, and not particularly effective because by all accounts um those vessels kept working and and i think at the time we kind of joked that Russia might purchase all of these vessels and use them themselves because they didn't particularly care about sanctions that is by my understanding of Basically, what happened, and so those that sanctions program was not effective in stopping the completion of Nord Stream two, um, and so in this NDAA, the Pisa sanctions were essentially broadened to beyond vessels to all sorts of other activities in connection with the completion of uh, of Nord Stream two, and and at least from an initial read of media reports, these these sanctions already appear to be. Um, more effective in in deterring Western countries from working on the completion of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, and so there's now some real concern as to whether it will be completed uh, in the wake of these new sanctions that were really passed with the NDAA, which was not signed by the President, it was actually vetoed by the President, but that override uh, happened at the very beginning of 2021 and so i think there are now some very muscular Nord Stream 2 sanctions in place that uh will you know are, are extremely unpopular with our allies um, or at least with with germany and and so i think it remains to be seen what a biden administration will have to say in the face of this now this is a law so it's not like they can repeal it and it, and certainly they will faithfully execute it but it does like the CATSA provision originally it does have some some language in it that suggests that the um you know that the u.s government consult with our allies on this and if they if we consult with germany i i suspect that i know how that conversation will go and so um i certainly could see the possibility of some of the waiver provisions being exercised um in a biden administration if they are on this kind of rebuilding tour with the allies and this is this shows up on germany's wish list but i think that remains to be seen because i can think of a lot of good a lot of reasons why you know a provision that just Mustered enough support in Congress to to override a, a presidential veto, and it, granted, it was part of the NDAA, so it's not like this provision alone mustered that level of support. But it's certainly not; it we got into the NDAA, would suggest that it did have a, a high level of support in Congress. I I, I will be surprised if a president, uh, you know, a new president comes in and and uh, decides that that is not something that he wants to enforce. But I also think that there are some some. Diplomatic reasons why this is going to be a tricky issue for the Biden administration to navigate coming in, but it, it does seem like it might comp- prevent the completion of Nord Stream Two, which the earlier sanctions have not.
0: Yeah, I, I just a couple quick thoughts on that. I think the so there was a report that came out a day or two after the passage of the 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 new uh, law and the expanded sanctions that a Norwegian-based company that had been contracted to perform pipeline integrity verification services, which is I think pretty squarely within the scope of the new newly added um, bases for the for the sanctions has said that they are going to cease uh, performance of, of that uh, conduct with respect to Nord Stream 2. Uh, so right there, somebody walking away uh, and there have been reports of this kind of when the PISA sanctions were passed in the pa- in the in the past. But that, that was pretty notable. And, and I also saw a report that there's the, the remainder of the work to be done here is largely in German and Danish waters. They were originally estimating it probably only required a few more months of work. Now they're they're pushing that out to maybe by late this year, it'll be done. Um, again, I think that's not quite factoring in fully what the impact of the sanctions here will be and, and how how many companies may be scared away and how long it might take to find substitute uh, companies that'll come in and perform. Because I agree with Tim, I think I, I, I am still skeptical that this is ultimately going to uh stop the final construction of the pipeline uh it it may delay and i think this also just rolls into one other big question which is because this is all ultimately about russia and about energy security uh and their sort of dominion over europe's energy security by virtue of their role in the pipeline um you know we've asked the question what is the new administration going to do with respect to russia when obviously the current administration didn't you know russia was a dirty word nobody wanted to hear about russia i think the the opposite is going to be true here which is i think we would expect much more uh aggressive action to counteract russia russian malign influence and russian um in whether in europe or, or here domestically and so i think that's just a bigger question that this kind of feeds into so i think I, I think this kind of tees up nicely, again, like, what will the new administration do with respect to Russia? And I think this will be part of it, or the Nord Stream 2, certainly, project generally will be part of it. Uh, and so we'll we'll just have to uh, stay tuned for that. But.
1: But, yeah, um... I just, I, I totally agree. I just think this one is a little more tricky than just the general Russia issue, because I think uh, generally the allies are aligned with respect yeah. to Russia's certainly what Russia di- has done in Ukraine and, and the need to push back against that. But I think that one of our allies in particular, Germany is very, very, it uh, feels very, very differently about Nord Stream 2. And so, so we'll, it's, it's going to be a tough one for, for, for President Biden to navigate.
0: Yeah, assuming assuming there's some sort of a perfunctory welcome, congratulations call that happens shortly after inauguration day between President Biden and Chancellor Merkel. I am certain this will be on the agenda. This <laughs> will be a be... this will be a talking point for yeah. for her side. So so yeah, that's exactly right. So so we'll see. But in any event, uh, that concludes the lightning round. That concludes our very first episode of 2021 for embargoed uh we we've, we've made it through uh we made it through 2020 uh we made it through the first week of uh 2021 we will see if we can make it through the next uh 12 days to get to inauguration yeah, day no one no
1: heard. one stormed the podcast as no one stormed
0: heard. our podcast studio uh which is uh w- and that's for me and tim and our producer matt so you know we're thank you to our loyal listeners there. Uh, and, and so thank you to everybody again for tuning in as always. Uh, it, uh, again, we, we appreciate, appreciate you listening, appreciate the support. Please subscribe. If you have not already, uh, we will be back in two weeks. Uh, so the next episode, we will probably record right after inauguration day, uh, the Thursday or Friday of that week. Uh, and so the, the next one will be up kind of the end of January toward the end of January. Um, and, who knows who knows what we're gonna have to be talking about at that time uh, I suspect more China but but uh, y- you know uh, we will we will hold our breaths and keep our fingers crossed that there's not something um, more um, more serious to talk about than that so uh, for for everybody uh, out there just thanks again happy New Year's and until next time stay safe and stay sanctions free
1: Stay sh- sanctions free everybody
0: thanks everyone bye